This is a Triple J podcast. Why should you take the time to chew your food? Does cooking affect the use-by date? And why do we crave a sweet treat after dinner? I'm Lucy Smith. We get into these questions and more in this episode of Science with Dr. Carl with Claire Collins from the University of Newcastle. Let's get into it. Dr. Carl, we've got someone else in the room with us, a friend of the show, but also someone with a big accolade. Do a you big accolade the- and my go-to person on food, dietetics and nutrition. And what is your accolade, Professor Wonderful Claire Collins from the University of Newey? Well, Dr. Carl, I was really fortunate to be awarded an AO. Wow. Yes. You deserve it. You're, yes. Man, you don't know so much stuff. Yes, yes. No, it was really exciting. Got to go to Government House. So I'm very honoured by the people who nominated me and... Uh, the whole ceremony actually makes you realise how many amazing volunteer Australians there are. And by all of us doing our bit and chipping in, we make it a great country, don't we? Oh, an order of Australia. That's massive. Yeah. What yeah. is something that you've been working on recently that maybe people can ask you questions about or an article you've written? What's been on your mind? Well, um, the latest article I wrote for the conversation was on chewing and how that stimulates specific regions of your brain relating to learning, memory and how it actually helps with managing anxiety and stress and even pain, believe it or not. But then for me and my research, my whole research program is looking at personalised and precision nutrition. And we had an amazing result last week. We just recruited our last person into this trial, 40 people. So exciting because things have been pretty tough during the COVID years with trying to get people into labs. Mm. But we're looking at um, metabolites that appear in your blood and your urine in response to being fed specific foods. So we've had these 40 wonderful people come and be our guinea pigs and let us get a stool sample, a blood sample, a urine sample, and ate all the food we gave them for two weeks on two occasions. And it's it's going to create us a nutrition map of how people vary in their response to both healthy and less healthy food and really provide a platform for going forward to testing personalised nutrition intervention. So watch this space. Mm. So would an example of that be two people have a certain amount of too much salt in their diet, but one person gets high blood pressure and the other one does not? Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly why we want to do it, Dr. Carl, because next year we will take a, do a study in people where something's already gone wrong in terms of their heart disease or their diabetes risk. But so far... We've just done the intervention so we know what should happen in people who don't already have a chronic disease Mm -hmm. and then that will help us be even more specific when we're developing personalised nutrition interventions. And why it's so exciting is because, honestly, this is the future of nutrition research and I work with a bunch of genetic researchers at the uni as well and um, we all see the same future that eventually, you know, you won't just go and get your cholesterol tested. They'll go, oh, and did you know that this is your genetic profile and this is how we can tailor so that the intervention is more aligned to your body's needs and also it can be monitored then by dietitians to help you get the response so that we save the government money on medications and everyone feels better and reaches their peak optimum nutrition-related health and well-being. And that's what, that's what drives me, you know, trying to help everybody 
get the best self because they know and can afford and can get access to the foods that meet their and their family's needs. Yeah. There's so many avenues we could already go down. So send in your questions, 0439 757 plus yeah. your regular questions for Dr. Carl. We're going to start here with Tom in Worrywood. Tom, you got a question about dairy. What's going on? Hey, um, I was just wondering how someone can become lactose intolerant after consuming dairy for so many years and that also runs for other food items as well. Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why things can happen to your gut. But the enzyme that digests lactose, which is the carbohydrate or the sugar in milk, it's a disaccharide. It's got two little molecules joined together, fancy names. One's glucose, everyone's heard of that, but the other one's called galactose. So this lactase enzyme, if you could put your small intestine under a microscope, it would look like bristles of a hairbrush. And lactase sits on the very tip Now, everyone's born with lactase because the main carbohydrate in breast milk is lactose, so you can digest it. But for some people, as they get older, the amount of lactase just naturally declines. That happens a lot in people who come from Asian regions. But the other reason it can start to disappear is if you cut down your own dairy products that have lactose in it or you get sick. You know, if you get a gastrointestinal bug or an infection, the first enzyme that you lose is that one sitting on the tip, the lactase. So if something happened to you around 15 or a combination of factors, you can lose lactase. But the good news is even if you have zero lactase, you were born with zero, you don't usually get diarrhoea unless you go out and have a big milkshake. You know, a little bit in a cup of tea uh, or a tiny, tiny amounts, you shouldn't get symptoms. So it's balancing symptoms versus ability to tolerate it that works for you. And just as an aside, you mentioned that there's two sugars stuck together and they're two bigs across the gut wall. One is glucose, the other one is galactose. And you're thinking, galactose, milk, Milky Way? It's not a coincidence. There's all these cultures oh. around the world that have a story, have these stories where one of their goddesses is breastfeeding the babies. Along comes a bad person. They run away protecting the baby. The breast milk squirts all over the sky and that causes the galaxy. So that's the link between galactose and milk and the Milky Way. Oh, wow. I really, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. That's so cool. We've got Maddie and Mandan here. Maddie, you got a question about insulin. Hi, doctors. Um, I do. I am insulin resistant from my PCOS. And I have been told by my doctor and looked it up online that it really affects my hormones. Um, but I don't know how and I want to know how it affects my body. Ah, look, um, there's an amazingly good article. So you got a pen and paper there? Yes. Okay. Um, new scientist, Alice Klein, K-L-E-I-N, and it was just a couple of months ago, 26th of January, 2023. And she has written this most gorgeous article about PCOS. Now, part of the problem is that it affects so many metabolic systems that it kind of falls between the cracks. You've got a problem with your heart, you go to the cardiologist, but here you're looking at all sorts of people like endocrinologists and respiratory people and liver and lung, and it affects so many different systems that finally we're getting it together. The name is also wrong. It's not that you have these cysts, but rather undeveloped eggs, and it causes problems. Well, the basic 
thing that you're starting off with is that you've got three major system uh, sort of abnormalities of the system. And by the way, it's affects between 5 and 18% of women. Um, the first thing is that they have a higher than normal testosterone level. They have a higher than normal insulin level and a higher than normal anti-mullerian hormone, which is involved with um, reproduction. And so the systems that are affected are ovaries, sure, brain, what, liver, fat and muscles, where'd that come from? Skin and hair, pancreas, uterus, heart. And so it affects so many different systems. So the best thing I can say for you is read that article and think, and, and, and then that'll give you just so much more knowledge. Yeah, and then the only other thing that I would add in is since, you know, my team, we've been looking more at some of these metabolites, not just derived from food, but what's interesting is some of the ones that appear in both your blood and urine, they actually secondary metabolites. So what that means is all the microbes that live in your colon, they're called commensal bacteria. That just means the bacteria or the bugs in your neighborhood because they're not all bacteria, but they're not inactive. They have their own metabolic pathways and some of them, the good guys, they produce metabolites that act peripherally in your body. So some of those metabolites can help to improve your insulin sensitivity and work along with all the other treatments and medications that your doctors are prescribing you. But one of the things that's sort of spotlighted for us is how important it is to eat foods in a diverse range of types of dietary fibres. So vegetables, fruits, whole grains, because that's the food for the healthy microbes that can enact these secondary metabolite pathways. So, you know, diverse fibres as, as part of your, your dietary pattern may help you, but you'll be the judge of if it is. And then just a short follow-on to Claire, you've got 37 trillion cells that came to you as a result of your parents loving each other very much in a special way. You've got 40 trillion that live mostly in your gut. That's more cells than came from your parents. So they're worthwhile looking after. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this is like the new frontier. So, you know, we've just talked about how these um, microbes in your gut can produce things that help your body. But some of those cross the blood-brain barrier as well and contribute to mental health. Thanks, Maddie. Thank you, doctors. I'm going to be very busy now. <laughs> yeah, you've got homework. There'll be an exam. We're sending you a multiple choice exam. In a couple of weeks, we expect you to get 85%. Be ready for it. Better be ready. High, high distinction. We've got Jordan here in Sydney. Jordan, you want to talk about a bit of a breakfast myth. What's going on? Um, I was probably thinking a bit more like along the lines of weight loss and stuff. Is it better to intermittent fast or and that which usually involves skipping breakfast or always have breakfast? See, this is one of those curly questions where the answer is that depends. And so a little bit depends on you. But let's just chat first. The reason why some people aren't hungry at breakfast is because some people don't stop eating till 10 o'clock at night. So you can get a 12-hour fast by eating breakfast, but you just have a, an early dinner and then you, you've stopped eating, eating by 7 p.m. at night. So some of the research suggests that you get an improvement in your metabolic health, so things like insulin sensitivity and improved regulation of your blood sugars if you do have at least one 12-hour fasting period overnight. So you can get that, like I said, early dinner or just take your breakfast to work. And for some people, the danger of not eating breakfast is that you get to work and you go, oh, 
didn't have any breakfast and now I'm starving and the only thing that's here is a machine where you put all your money in or they only sell <laughs> junk food that you can access. Yes. And then, oh, darn, you've ended up having your whole day's worth of kilojoules because you went through the drive through Yeah, so it's it's all of those things. But any of those dietary strategies, whether it's the 16-hour overnight fast, the intermittent fast, the alternate day fast or the 5-2, they all work in the short term. But the danger time is when you stop doing that approach. Most people go back to average Australian diet, which is 30% junk food, rather than going, oh, yeah, I'm now going to always eat carrots every single night. Mm. I'm always going to have an apple for lunch and I'm always going to have a nice whole grain cereal for breakfast rather than a drive-through breakfast. So any effort that you make to include more of those, sounds boring, but more of those old five food groups, any that that you make that actually helps you eat like that all the time is really good. And if, if you're really out of ideas, we've also got an article on breakfast foods if you Google no money, no time. You can get a bit more nutrition information there. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Jason, from Warren Wood, you've got a question about metabolism. I do, doctors. Just one, there's a couple of different points to this question. But firstly, uh, does age, injury or illness slow down our metabolism? Um, that's complicated. Uh, we've finally got the answer following 40 years of work by 80 scientists at 63 different research centres around the world looking at about 6,500 people from 29 countries covering people from aged 8 days to 95 years of age. And what we thought simplistically is wrong. Here's how it goes. So you, you get born, forget the first month. You're just being alive, settling in, forget the first month. Basically, your metabolic rate is like that of an adult aged 20 to 80 right? Oh, sorry, 20 to 60. Then then we, we you kick back into being a baby. So from one month to one year, it accelerates like crazy. You are burning energy like crazy. You are growing organs like crazy. You have the highest metabolic rate of your entire life by the time you get to age one, and that's 50% above adult levels. Stage two, one year of age to 20. And surprisingly, even though you think you're a really boppy teenager running around, your metabolic rate is slowing down by 3% per year. So you're 16 years old, and when you turn 17, it's gone down by 3%, and then 18, 3%. So it slows down from age 1 to 20. And this is a big surprise. Third stage, 20 to 60. Constant. We used to think it just sort of dropped when you were 20 going down. It's pretty well constant from 20 to 60. And then after 60, it drops by about 0.7 of a percent per year. So it's dropping at a slower rate than the 3% per year that happens between age 1 and 20. So is that a bit of a background? I've written a story on this. So look up ABC, Dr. Carl and Metabolic Mystery and you'll find it all in greater detail. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, look, it certainly does. And I just sort of wondered if, like, if you got sick for, a, say, a long period of time with cancer or some sort of prolonged injury, would it have an impact? Sure. Um, um, look up Bow Line, B E A U Line, L I N E, and that's a horizontal line across the fingernail. So when I was working in the medical system, I'd always shake hand with a person. I'd feel their hand. I'd feel if their fingers were diverted. I'd look at their hand on both sides. I'd look at their fingernails. And if they had a horizontal line, I'd do the numbers in my head, five millimetres a week. I'd say, it looks to me like you might have been really sick four weeks ago. 
and blow me down. They say, yeah, I had something. I was, I was really sick for about a week. And there's that horizontal line where the fingernails stopped growing. Wow. And, and if that happens to hap- occur when you, as a growing teenager, happen to have a pre-programmed growth spurt, you miss out on a growth spurt forever, which is why people today are taller because we have better treatments, vaccines, antibiotics, so you don't have those massive illnesses that just knock you out for a week. So, yes, it can knock you out. Claire? Yeah, and the other thing, in acute illness, it, it just depends. Your metabolic rate can be extremely high. And in some of the intensive care units, they have these mobile metabolic carts to help them individualise a person's energy requirements. So if you think of something like burns, you know, where people have got to make all this new skin so and they can be highly variable. So that that's just some of the things that are happening clinically in really acute illnesses. And then, you know, for longer term recovery, if you're really ill, you might lose a lot of like the your body's powerhouse, which is your muscles. So it may take a while to actually rebuild those muscles, which essentially help restore your metabolic rate which, you know, it's really important tissue. So there's a lot happening out there, but uh, everyone's different as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Would any foods speed up or slow down your metabolism? Not, 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 specific, not specifically. So I think, you know, I think you've got homework to do from Dr. Carl there. So <laughs> have a read of those. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. We've got Matt from Swan Hill. Matt, what happened recently? Hello, guys. Um, so last week I accidentally food poisoned myself. Um, I see I tenderized my steak with the back of the fork and then forgot to change my fork and I used the fork that I tenderized it with to eat it. Um, so later that night at about eight or nine o'clock at night, uh, I ended up having to go to the toilet many times, didn't sleep at all. Um, but I didn't throw up all night and I threw up at six AM in the morning. So my question is, would it be would it have been better for me to throw up at night straight away or keep the food down until the morning when I'd actually threw up. The the bad news for you is that the pathogens got in your body and That's essentially, there, yeah. yeah, they had to run their course. So there's different reasons, different bugs make different toxic compounds and different numbers of them depending on, you know, how long that's been incubating because bugs, they uh, divide and divide and divide. So the longer the period of time foods have had the food spoilage and the different type of bacteria is depends whether you get mostly diarrhea or whether you throw up. But unfortunately, um, you can't really control that once the food's left your stomach and it's not all in your stomach. So, you know, that's a really good reminder about being super careful. People mm. think about food left out, but they forget about chopping boards and marinade mixes and forks and things like that. The danger temperature zone is between the fridge. The fridge is safe. Food with steam rising, that means it's more than 70 degrees and it's killed the bugs. So it's you don't want food more than two hours in the danger zone, which is, you know, not hot and outside the fridge. So, oh, gosh. Yeah, so that was bad luck, but, yeah, hard way to learn. But I don't think it would have helped if you'd, if you'd forced yourself to throw it up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep, cool. Thanks, Thank Matt. You. We've got Hugo in Port Stevens. Hugo, what's your question? Uh, g'day, doctors. I just had a question about turmeric and how it's absorbed in the body and the benefits that it can give you with your joints and muscle pains and things. Oh, a turmeric that is wrongly pronounced, it should be pronounced turmeric, and secondly, which apparently, according to what I've been reading, can cure sunstroke, syphilis, varicose veins and bad handwriting and align your kundalini's. <laughs> Professor Claire set it straight. <laughs> yeah, well... I used to always call it turmeric, Dr. Carl. So, you know, we're all wrong, aren't we? But the bioactive part of it is 
um, which is only about 3% of its weight. It's called curcumin. And it's been in lots of used in lots of studies for anti-inflammatory properties. So the pathways that help damp down the inflammation, it's able to crank them up. But the one problem is when you look at the research studies, the dose that you get given of curcumin is between one to ten grams. But if I gave you a teaspoon of turmeric, I'm calling it turmeric, <laughs> then you would get about 0.1 of a gram or less. So there's a big difference between taking it by capsules versus just using it in the food. And the thing is, it's not the only thing that can help with inflammation. Believe it or not, the types of fatty acids that you have in your dietary patterns influences inflammation. So if you have a super high intake of polyunsaturated fats, good old sunflower oil, more so than you have olive oil or any other type of fat, they they provide the substrate for inflammatory compounds, the metabolic pathways. Those fatty acids get turned into pro-inflammatory, turns the dial up on inflammation. So if you're, if you're deep frying all your turmeric flavoured, you know, spring rolls or something in polyunsaturated fats, you're actually turning the dial up on inflammation. So the curcumin is going to be of no use. Oh. But if you're having healthy background fats, so the olive oils that don't, that are inert, they don't crank up inflammation, then just enjoy the turmeric and all the other lovely herbs and spices and, and, um, and that will have a bigger effect than whether or not you eat turmeric and curcumin. So how can you tell if the olive oil is not going to enhance inflammation? No, olive oil is predominantly monounsaturated. Okay. Okay, so it, it, it's fatty, specific fatty acids, predominant fatty acids don't get turned into pro-inflammatory um, uh, chemicals. They're called cytokines, fancy word. But they're called omega-6s. So they're long chains, but they're different to like the ones in fish oils or omega-3 capsules. The omega-3, the fish fats, they have the exact opposite effect of the omega-6s. They get turned into anti-inflammatory chemicals. Mm-hmm. So if you made it a salmon curry or a, you know, a, long, a fishy curry and you only use olive oil and you put in some turmeric, well, there's your meal pattern that's going to help with reducing inflammation. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's, see, it's, yeah. It, it's, so, so, it's so exciting and so complicated, but um, it's, it's really, really, really interesting. So enjoy the flavours, but you'd have to be, you know, eating them by the tablespoonful to get the therapeutic effect. And oh. I think food is nicer than taking capsules. Mm. Okay. Well, we're going to get to one last question before we take a song. Blake in Geelong, what do you want to know? Hey, guys. Um, I've just got a question about artificial sweeteners. There's been a lot of research over the, over the years showing that um, it reduces um, obesity. Um, but recently, the WHO have come out and said um, they don't recommend this due to an insulin response um, and that it can actually lead to obesity. So I was just wondering um, why this is and um, what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, this is super hot off the press. So you're really onto it. Congratulations on that. So the WHO, they updated their previous systematic review and now, believe it or not, they've got like 280 plus studies and it's changed some of the evidence with more of these studies. So in the randomised control trials, these are the purest, highest level trial. They're completely artificial because you take two groups of people, you give one group sugar-sweetened foods, the other group artificial-sweetened foods. At the end of the study, 
there was a slight lower body weight in the artificial sweetened group and a slight reduction in BMI and a slight boost in um, a slight boost in I think it was HDL but it was minor like uh, um, 700 grams different at the end of the trial and so what they're looking at is countering that with the cohort and the case control studies of which there are hundreds so this is where you take a group of people you go who uses artificial sweeteners and then you look at what do they develop now the big consumers of artificial sweeteners were more likely to uh, gain weight, they were more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, more likely to develop heart disease and more likely to die of any cause. And so this is to them now, they're issuing, I guess, a caution and saying artificial sweeteners are not the panacea, but the results could be confounded. It doesn't, doesn't prove cause and effect. To me, what it says, it proves if you tell everyone to use artificial sweeteners and people go, woohoo, got my diet soft drink and now I can have my massive creamy, creamy donut and my massive drive-through takeaway because I'm drinking diet drinks, then that's what the type of confounding that they're concerned about, which might then say, oh, yeah, well, that's actually why you're getting these other medical conditions. So the bottom line evidence is don't rely on artificial sweeteners in the long term. If you're having them now, think about dropping them down and getting your body used to less sweet tastes and that will help adjust your taste buds so you don't you can give artificial sweetness the flick. Thank you. Neil from Caring Bar. Neil, you got a question about margarine. What's going on? Yeah, these um, cholesterol-lowering margarines. I'm just wondering whether they've actually got ingredients in them that do that for you or you're just better off avoiding margarine and butter altogether and you you still would lower your cholesterol. Yeah, those margarines actually do have compounds specifically added to them. They've specifically extracted these things called plant astanols and what they're able to do is they're basically able to stick to some of the um, preformed cholesterol in your gut and pull it out so that you can't keep increasing your cholesterol pool. So they'll help to, it's actually specifically the bile salts. So the bile salts get returned to the body's cholesterol pool. Then you manufacture more cholesterol that goes around in your blood. So if you particularly have a family history of high cholesterol, these products can be very helpful. But for the ordinary person, doesn't need them. Uh, avoiding foods that are high in saturated fat, that's essentially the, the, the most important thing. And if you want more information, you can um, go on the Heart Foundation website. They've got tons and tons of information on heart health. And that's a really great plug because it was Heart Health Week last week. Don't forget as an adult to go and have a heart health check. You've got to book in for that with your GP. But, you know, that's the good way to assess your overall um, heart health. Thanks, Neil. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. We've got Jen in Brisbane. Jen, you may have found a hack. What is it? Um, yeah, ABC posted a thing on Instagram the other week about how if you're chewing whilst cutting onions, you don't cry. So I tested it out and it seems to work and I wanted to know why. Mm. Well, that is excellent because, you know, my source says that in a research trial, it actually had no effect. <gasps> 
But if that's working for you, that's great. But the, uh, the thing that's interesting is why you cry in the first place. And it's actually those sulfur-containing compounds that are in onions. And when you cut them, especially if your knife's blunt, more of them go in the air and really irritate your, uh, your eyes. So for me personally, the only thing that works is wearing goggles or getting <laughs> someone else actually to cut up the onions. And, um, yeah, so that doesn't work for me. But chewing has so many other amazing um, factors. So the more you chew, the more blood flows to your brain, but particularly to um, your hippocampus, which is involved in learning, memory, and also the areas of your brain involved in emotional regulation. And there's actually studies that have, where they've done interventions with chewing gum so they can control how much they get people to chew that have shown it can help reduce anxiety. So chewing, in your, st- in your article in the conversation, look it up, can improve anxiety and it's a remarkably simple treatment with mm. very few side effects but can have major effects on both anxiety and also your exam performance. Yeah, that was really amazing, Carl. There was this research done in 100 final year nurses, their final exams. You can imagine how stressed they are. Mm. And this experiment took 100 of them, put them into three groups. One group, they had to chew for 30 minutes a day and they gave them all the the sugar-free chewing gum for three weeks. One group only doing the chewing for one week and the other group, you know, drink water, no no special chewing intervention. But both the chewing gum groups had lower levels of stress, anxiety and depression around the exam time, but the three-week chewers got better marks on the exam. Wow. And that particular area of the brain, the hippocampus, it facilitates the transfer of information from your short-term memory into your long-term memory. So that kind of fits with the three-week intervention. They were studying, studying, but they were pushing more information into their memory to draw on during the actual exam. So, so what are you saying? Slow down, eat your food, just have a chew? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like modern food's all soft and non-chewy. You know, like don't overcook your veggies, have chewy food, have, have, have you know, things like apples and carrots. Yeah. Chewing is so, so underrated, but it's an easy thing you can do. But as a society, we chew less because our food is now so processed. And so chewing can help with anxiety, which is a major, major thing, and can also cure earworms. Okay. Ra, ra, ah, 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 ro, ma, Okay, let me apologise for my bad singing, but it turns out that the same part of your brain that's involved with getting that earworm running is also involved with chewing. So chewing can help get earworms out of your brain. Scott in Clarence Town, you got a question about use-by dates. What's What's happening? Yes, I'm just wondering if um, you've got some chicken that's say due to go out in a day, out of date in a day or two, and then you cook it. Does it then extend the sort of the life of the chicken that still makes it edible? Mm, yeah, this. yeah, yeah, it absolutely does, and that's because then you're if there's any bugs living on the chicken or that have even penetrated through the chicken, then you've killed them. Mm. So Salmonella is the bug that's most likely to contaminate chicken. But the key thing is once you've cooked it, put it in a clean dish and then back in the fridge and keep it cool. And then, yeah, you're back to square one and it can keep there for for a few days. How much time could you add on to that? Well, you've added probably at least three days onto it. Wow. Uh, Again, depending on how long it's in the danger zone. But what's unusual about chicken, say, compared to steak is the bugs 
can penetrate more easily through chicken flesh mm. compared to st- steak um, where they tend to stay on the surface because the tissue is much more dense. So that's why you can eat your steak relatively rare and not get food poisoning. But if you did that with chicken, chances are you will get food poisoning, especially if there was any salmonella that had penetrated. Wow. So you need to cook chicken well and then back in the fridge um, as soon as the steam starts coming off it, in the fridge. And, yeah, you can get chicken sandwiches for lunch for the next couple of days. Okay. I, I never knew that. Me neither. So, so it's the density of the steak that yes. means that the back, bad guy bacteria won't penetrate. So you can have it relatively rare on the inside. Yes, but it's no bugs on the inside. You learn and something mm, every day. Yeah. You save me. Yes. Wow. I was always yes. like, so you've got to cook chicken well. well that's the key that. thing. There you go. How did I not know that? There you go. There you go. See, that's Claire. why you need a friend like me, Carl. That's it. I love a friend like you. Blowing our minds. <laughs> We've got Emily in Albury here. Emily, you and I have the same problem. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am addicted to sugar, particularly after dinner. So why is it and how do I kick it to the curb? That's it. Yeah. Well, Emily, you're not alone. <laughs> So I have a colleague at the University of Newcastle, Professor Tracy Burrows, so you can Google her, and she's okay. written a lovely article for The Conversation exactly on this issue, food addiction, and all her research is on that. So it's really controversial around the world is whether it's a behavioural addiction, like we get addicted to the eating, like we get addicted mm. to poker machines, or is it more like a drug addiction and I need more, more, more. But there's mm. a couple of theories as to why it's increasing. And one is because... When you eat, you get a boost in serotonin. Like that's like the happy chemical in your brain. And then your body gets used to that sugar hit that triggers this big serotonin release in your brain. And so it's real. It's Tracy, Professor Burroughs is actually developing personalized treatments for food addiction that target your personal traits. So if you go to that article, you might then like to leap out to the Google articles around the Yale food addiction questionnaire and you can diagnose yourself then as to whether or not you truly are a food addict. But the other reason why we think it's increasing is some of those chemicals that are now added to food are what are called hyperpalatable. You cannot find foods as delicious as that combo that they put together in nature. So when we get it, our all of our oral senses and smell and everything just goes nuts. And, and we're addicted. So we've got this question from Rob, which I feel like maybe taps into the sugar aspect of Emily's question. Rob, what do you want to know? Yeah, well, I do actually feel my question might be similar lines. I want to know why do we like foods that are bad for us so much? Like, how did we evolve to enjoy a donut rather than, you know, a, a banana or something? Like, yeah, yeah why, well, why well is... we didn't evolve. The food industry is evolving us. So we have no control over this. So it's just good to know that these things did not exist in nature and now we're being kind of like tricked into getting getting the, habituated to them. So, you know, it might be easy to go cold turkey, just don't eat the stuff and then get back to the point where you do go, wow, that banana is so sweet and yummy, I'm going to eat another one. But is there a reason that, you know, you can have a full meal, but for me it's like I still just want a little sweet treat after dinner? Well, the survivor, the biology survivor of that is if you switch to a new taste, you can fit a bit more food in. Mm. Whereas you get bored if you just eat, eat more meat and veg, meat and veg. But you switch to sweet to go, oh, I haven't had any of that. And you do you are able to fit a bit more in and that helped us survive. So we didn't just eat the woolly mammoth. Oh, we've now we've got some berries. So we get a more varied diet 
and we're more likely to survive if we can fit a bit more in when there's food available. That makes so much sense. You can have a whole meal, but then you can still fit in gelato on the way home. Yep, piece of chocolate on the way home. Oh. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And if you want more guest episodes, take a scroll through the podcast feed. We talk reproductive health with Dr. Naomi Kabelik. We get into the world of chemistry with Alice Motion. And we deep dive into marine science with David Wackenfeld. Like, subscribe, do what you've got to do to stay a part of the Science with Dr. Carl fam. My name's Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill. And we'll catch you next week. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast, it's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.